Tonight we continue our series in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, one of the prison epistles written to a church, as we have said often during this series, that he loved uh, dearly, appreciated to the fullest extent for their faithfulness from the first day until the time that he wrote to them in this epistle as he expressed it. Your fellowship in the gospel, he expressed appreciation for that fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. That's Philippians 1 and verse 5. And that first day takes us back to Acts chapter 16 where the conversion of Lydia and her household followed by the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household brought together for the first time the church of our Lord on European soil. And the Philippian church did great work in the kingdom, and that church was a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. In the section we concluded last time in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a great section indeed where Paul made his final appeal for unity, if you will, beginning in verse 5 of that chapter where he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we talked some about the mind of Christ, simply taking that word mind as an acrostic and looking at the meekness of Christ. He had a meek mind and uh, an interested mind, interested in individuals, uh, as with the woman at the well. And he was narrow-minded. That is, he taught that we must enter by the narrow gate and follow that narrow way, not the broad gate that leads to destruction. And we need to be as narrow-minded as the Christ, no more and no less. And he had a mind of deep devotion, of course, to the cause that he came to this earth to bring into existence and the establishment of his church. In the context in which Paul calls upon his readers to have the mind of Christ, he exalts the humility of Christ and the willingness of Christ to come to this earth to, to give up equality with, with God and to humble himself and to make himself of no reputation, as the New King James says, the American Standard says, to empty himself, to take the form of a bond servant, to come in the likeness of a man, to be found in appearance as a man, and to humble himself and to become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then in those last few verses we studied last time, Paul points out that God has highly exalted him because of his willingness to come to this earth and to make the ultimate sacrifice for your sins and mine, that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, quite probably the name Lord, because in verse 11, the last verse we studied last time, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord meaning the one with authority, the one with supreme authority and that every tongue should confess Christ with everything involved in that confession, meaning complete obedience to his will. And ultimately, as we pointed out last time, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Tragically, for most who have ever lived on this earth or ever shall live, that confession will come at a time when it will do them no good in terms of their eternal salvation because they will not confess him now rather than later. Now we come to a therefore based upon these verses that we have just reviewed. Since Christ was willing to do what he did, since Christ humbled himself as he did, therefore, therefore, 
motivated by the supreme sacrifice of Christ, motivated by the fact that he was willing to give up equality with God and to suffer immensely, as we pointed out last time, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he calls upon the church at Philippi to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved, over in chapter 4 and verse 1, he uses that term of endearment again. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, simply reminding us of the deep affection, the wonderfully close relationship that he sustained to the church at Philippi. And now he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, calling attention to the fact that they had been obedient, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I'm, in, uh, I'm a prisoner in Rome. I'm writing to you as a prisoner in Rome, and I'm encouraging you now to do what? Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. That's an interesting admonition, isn't it? It's an interesting admonition in light of the prevalent teaching that once uh, an individual is saved, supposedly, he is always saved and that there is nothing that he must do in order to uh, ultimately bring about his final and ultimate salvation in heaven. But that's exactly what Paul is calling upon these who have been saved from their sins, having obeyed the gospel of Christ, having believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized. He is saying to them, now work out to the end is the idea here. In other words, carry it through to the end. Your what? Your salvation your salvation. If indeed there was nothing anyone could do or should do after being saved from past sins in order to ultimately achieve eternal salvation, this admonition would be absolutely useless and unnecessary. But indeed, indeed it is clear from this and so many other admonitions in Scripture that once we become Christians, that's just the beginning of our salvation. That is the salvation from past sins, yes, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, but having been cleansed by that blood, we must remain cleansed by it continually. By what? By working out our own salvation. That's equivalent to 1 John 1. Walk in the light as He is in the light. As God is in the light, we're to walk in the light. That is equivalent to working out our own salvation. And so, as we have often said, there are so many who work so hard, so hard indeed, to get work out of Christianity, to eliminate it altogether. And yet hundreds of passages in Scripture make it abundantly clear that we are to work out our own salvation. That is, that there are works that we are to do. Now, what kind of works are they? We have often talked about it, but we certainly need to be reminded uh, of it, that the works that we do are not works that are our meritorious works. There are different kinds of works spoken of in Scripture, as we well know, I'm sure, I hope by now, and that is there are works of the law of Moses. That, that law has been done away, nailed to the cross. There are meritorious works, that is, works by which we would seek to try to earn our salvation, uh, and yet we cannot do that. We can't devise a system of works by which we, we save ourselves. 
And yet, Paul says, work out your own salvation. In other words, there is something that we are to do that is characterized as work on our part, but not works of the law of Moses, nor works that we would devise by which we would seek to save ourselves, but they are works of obedient faith. Listen to Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's exactly what Paul is calling upon them to do. Carry out the works that God has prepared for you. Those of you who have been created in Christ Jesus, that's those who become Christians. If you've been created in Christ Jesus, that means you've obeyed the gospel. You've become a Christian. To what purpose have you become a Christian? To work out your ultimate eternal salvation. How? By doing the works which you have devised? No. Which the law of Moses sets forth? No. But which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Back to Ephesians 2 and verse 10. And so indeed, there is clearly a type of work in Scripture that is absolutely essential to our salvation. And we're to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Is Paul saying that you need to live every day of your life scared to death of going to hell? Is that what fear and trembling here means? No, but it does mean a sober caution and a very special care and attention to the Christian life, realizing how important it is that I maintain my relationship with God and that I reverence Him as I should, that I respect Him as I should, that I love and respect His Word as I should, and that I tremble at the thought of a deliberate departure from that Word and from His will. It's a reverential, healthy fear and trembling. There are far too many people who treat very casually what I hold in my hand. Some don't treat it at all. They have nothing absolutely to do with it. But some treat it very lightly and very casually. And yes, even some who claim to be Christians and some who have become Christians still treat it rather casually from the standpoint of spending precious little time delving deeply into its pages in order to know as fully as possible the will of God for their lives. There needs to be a reverential fear and a trembling at the thought of departing from, from God's will, recognizing that it is God who works in us, as Paul next writes, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. How is it that God works in us? How is it that he does that? You remember that Earlier in this, same, uh, uh, in this same epistle, early in the uh, first uh, chapter, Paul wrote at verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who is it that began a good work in them? God did. And Paul is expressing a confidence that he who, who, who began that good work, God, in them, in those uh, Philippians, will bring it to fruition until the day of Christ, until Christ comes again. In other words, God will do his part. 
he basically reiterates that thought here by saying God is working in you in t- to do two things, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that's very important that we understand that there are two aspects that are pointed out here by the Apostle Paul. He does not say it is God who works in you to do his good pleasure. There wouldn't be anything wrong with his saying that because that's true. But he adds something that is very important. God is working in you to produce the desire to do his will as well as the action itself. And that is vitally important, a vitally important consideration for us to understand. Remember, in our Bible class this morning in the auditorium, in the Galatian letter, Paul said that you have been called to liberty, Galatians 5.13, but do not use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh, but by love or through love serve one another. Earlier in the Galatian letter, at the same, in the same chapter, at the sixth verse, he said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Working through love. You have a similar thought here. It is God who works in you both to what? Both to will. To will or desire based upon what? Galatians 5.13, Galatians 5.6, love. Love should produce the will to do what God wants us to do. And so Paul doesn't leave it with God is working in you to do his good pleasure, to do his will, but God is working in you to produce the desire to do his will as well as doing it. And what kind of desire is involved? Love. What is the emotion that produces the desire? The overwhelming, supreme emotion that produces the desire? It is love. It is love. Oh, yes, we recognize that we have a duty to God. And we recognize, as we have often said, the reality of hell. But hell is an unnecessary reality for those who love God and do his will. For those who will let God work in them to produce that desire to serve as well as the action of service itself. And how does God do that? Not in some mysterious, better felt than told fashion, but through this very book I hold in my hand. It is this book that will produce in every single one of us the will and the action, but it'll do nothing if we basically ignore it or if we do not spend the time that is necessary with that book in order to produce within our hearts that love that will produce that desire to do his will as well as the action itself. And then he admonishes, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, all things, obviously, is limited to all things that are right to do. (laughs) There are some things that are right to do and some things that are wrong uh, to do. So, obviously, here in this context, he's saying everything that is right for the Christian to do, do it without complaining and disputing, as the New King James says complaining and murmuring. The scripture has a great deal to say about how displeased God is with murmuring and disputing, discord and complaining. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 
10, this same writer, the Apostle Paul, talked about the uh, Old Testament examples of those uh, Israelites who uh, murmured in the wilderness, uh, let us not commit sexual immorality, verse 8 of chapter 10, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. That takes us back to Numbers 25. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. That takes us back to Numbers 21. Remember that incident? Um, and uh, now all these things happened, he says, verse 11, to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. And then he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so our attitudes, uh, our words are vitally important in terms of the attitude to do all things that are right to do, but to do them without uh, murmuring and disputing or complaining. The Bible has a great deal to say about the attitude with which we are to do what we do as Christians in our Christian walk. Peter, First Peter 4 and verse 9, just simply says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. Well, we ought to have so-and-so over. We haven't had them over, and we need to do that. I don't want to, but we need to have them over. <laughs> no, hospitality without grumbling. Work in the kingdom without murmuring and complaining. And then he says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a sobering reminder this verse is about how our attitude will affect whether or not we are blameless, not sinless, not sinless, but blameless. That is, we cannot be reproached. We cannot have an accusation brought against us based upon a wrong attitude that we have. No one can level an accusation or a charge against us uh, in that respect. We're blameless. And harmless is the idea of purity, uh, to be uh, pure as children of God, without fault, without spot, is the idea. And notice this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do you think tonight that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? I don't think there's any question about it. And that word crooked, incidentally, is, is the word from which we get the word scoliosis, the, the lateral curvature of the spine uh, that occurs in some of us. I got a little bit of it myself. My wife tells me that quite a bit, straight, try to straighten up some. But that scoliosis, uh, scolios, uh, the word from which we get our word scoliosis, that condition, this is the word crooked here. We live in a, in a world that's not straight. Our world is crooked and perverse or corrupt. How do we approach that situation? How do we address the fact, the reality, that we live in just such a generation even now, one that seems to be becoming more crooked and more perverse with every passing day. We're to shine. We're to shine as lights in that generation. We're to shine as lights in this world, among whom you shine. Keep on shining is literally the idea here. Not a... Uh, 
not a spotlight or a flashlight that comes on and off, but a continually shining light in a world that is growing, it seems, ever darker with sin every day. And you know, that's kind of an exciting challenge. We can say, well, it's a pretty discouraging situation that we find ourselves in. That's true in one sense, but look at it from the other side. Uh, what a time to be alive as a light. What a time to be uh, available as a continually shining light. If ever we needed shining lights, it seems this is the generation in which we need those shining lights. And so let's make sure that we are children of God, blameless and harmless, without fault, and that in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that we are shining. Remember what Jesus said about it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14, beginning. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he says, nor do, they light a, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Then he says, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, there's something that accompanies, accompanies closely the shining that Paul is, is, uh, is admonishing here upon these Christians and thus Christians for all time. As you shine, you are to hold fast. A part of the shining, that which is integral to the shining, is the holding fast. Shine as lights in the world by doing what, Paul? Holding fast the word of life. The way we shine as lights is by holding fast or holding forth, a combination of ideas here, this word. We hold it up to the world, as it were. How? Not only by, by trying to get them to read this book, but we hold it up to the world as we live it out in our lives and as they see that word in us. And Paul says, that's what I want you at Philippi to do, and thus Christians for all time so that I, here in this case, he says, I'm, I'm specifically admonishing you Philippians to do that because I was there from day one of your conversion. You're my children in the gospel, as it were, and I want to be able to rejoice in the day of Christ over you Philippians that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, we've talked before in other connections about whether or not we will recognize each other in heaven one day, in paradise and ultimately in heaven. Will there be recognition? Will we know one another? Absolutely we will know one another. The Bible clearly affirms that in more than one passage, and here's one of them right here, that implies clearly, and implication is one way of proving something from Scripture, this implies recognition. How would Paul rejoice over them in the day of Christ, and the day of Christ is clearly the second coming of Christ, when I will stand with you before Christ in judgment, he is saying here, I want to be able to rejoice over you that you have made it there and that my labor among you was not in vain. That's exactly what he's saying here. Now, question, how could he possibly rejoice over their ultimate eternal salvation when they're all together at the judgment if he has no clue as to who they are. 
The Philippians are here somewhere, aren't they? Maybe. I don't know. I, don't, I can't recognize any of them. Yes, he'll be able to recognize them. There will be that recognition. You remember when we studied 1 Thessalonians, we talked about this very principle based upon the statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. A very similar expression by Paul for the Thessalonian Christians. Listen to it again. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? What is it that we hope for, brethren? What is it that we look forward to rejoicing over as our crown? What is it? Here it is. Is it not even you, you Thessalonian Christians? When, Paul? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. For you are our glory and joy. In other words, when I stand with the Thessalonians and I stand with the Philippians who have been faithful unto death, I will rejoice, I will rejoice over their presence at the judgment and to know of their salvation. So I believe very clearly that the scriptures teach there will be that recognition. We can anticipate that joyous reunion with the faithful who have gone on before. And then he adds, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What he's saying here is, I don't know if even now I will be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now the allusion here is to the Old Testament sacrifices. And if you go back to a passage like Numbers 15, verse 5, and also over in Numbers 28, verses uh, 7 and 14, you see the drink offering mentioned there. And the animal sacrifice or the burnt offering was offered, and the drink offering poured over that uh, burnt offering. That's what he alludes to here. He is saying that if I, by giving my life, and becoming, even now, and I do not know that for sure, obviously, but if I am going to be poured out as a drink offering, it will be in combination with your sacrifice and your service. I'll be like the drink offering poured over that Old Testament sacrifice, poured on the sacrifice that you are making through your service by your obedient faith. What a beautiful, beautiful picture he paints here of their sacrifice and the sacrifice that he was willing to become along with them, even if it was the sacrifice of his life. He says, if it calls for that now, if that is to be, then I am glad. I'm glad. Willing and glad to become that sacrifice, and I rejoice with you all. And then he admonishes for the same reason, for the same reason that I'll rejoice if that happens. I want you to be glad as well and rejoice with me. And again, it simply reminds us of something that we've often pointed out about the Apostle Paul and the unselfish attitude that he manifested. No pity party going on here in prison at Rome. If I'm to die, if I'm to die for the cause of Christ, I want you to rejoice with me because I rejoice I rejoice to be able to be offered for the cause of Jesus Christ. What an attitude. That attitude did not develop 
without constant application to spiritual things that produced in him the kind of faith, the kind of maturity that would enable him to with confidence say, if I am being poured out even now as a drink offering, I rejoice over that. And I'm glad to become that sacrifice. You be glad with me. You be glad with me. What a beautiful section of Scripture this is in the Philippian letter. Have we reached a point in our, in our faith, in our development as Christians, where we could express that same, that same attitude that the Apostle Paul expressed, that even now, if we were being poured out as drink offerings, as it were, for the cause of Christ, if we found ourselves in similar conditions where our lives were being threatened as a result of our being faithful children of God, would we be prepared to make that sacrifice? We can be if we aren't. And the only thing that can get us there is God working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure as he works through this, this which produces that kind of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And tonight, if you're not a Christian, then certainly you're not prepared to sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ because you haven't sacrificed self in order to become a follower of Christ, denying self and taking up your cross and following him, as Jesus said is necessary for all of us to do, to become his followers. Will you do that tonight if you haven't by a belief that leads you to repent of sins, confess Jesus as the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission? sins. If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, we plead with you to do that tonight as we stand together and sing. Burdens are lit.
house is very near. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very anyone need to protect the Lord's Supper didn't have opportunity. Be seated, please. Please turn to 111. 111. <clears throat> we'll sing the second verse. Would you raise your hand again, please? Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this, again, an op another opportunity to come here this evening, study Thy Word, and hear a good lesson. We thank Thee for this opportunity to partake of the bread which is before us. May we look at our hearts and determine that we do it with the right attitude and in a manner pleasing unto thee. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Likewise, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this fruit of the vine, which is to us a symbol of the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we, may we also partake of it in a manner pleasing unto You, looking forward to His death, to His return. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.
That concludes the Lord's Supper. As we know, giving of our means is also part of worship. And if there are those who would like to give at this time and have not had an opportunity to do so today, would you raise your hand, please? Number 350. Three fifty will sing the last verse that will be dismissed. If you would please stand. 